Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dreadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is the most terrifying thing I could find for a very special episode. It's episode 42. So tonight is an excerpt from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, because Vogon poetry is terrifying. By Douglas Adams. Somewhere in a small, dark cabin buried in the intestines of prostinate Vogon Jeltz's flagship, a small match flared nervously. The owner of the match was not a Vogon, but he knew all about them and was right to be nervous. His name was Ford Prefect. He looked about the cabin but could see very little. Strange, monstrous shadows loomed and leapt with the tiny flickering flame. But all was quiet. He breathed a silent thank you to the Dentrosis. The Dentrosis are an unruly tribe of Gormons, a wild but pleasant bunch whom the Vogons had recently taken to employing as catering staff on their long-haul fleets, on the strict understanding that they keep themselves very much to themselves. This suited the Dutrosi fine because they loved Vogon money, which is one of the hardest currencies in space, but loathed the Vogons themselves. The only sort of Vogon a Dutrosi liked to see was an annoyed Vogon. It was because of this tiny piece of information that Ford Prefect was not now a whiff of hydrogen ozone, and carbon monoxide. He heard a slight groan. By the light of the match, he saw a heavy shape moving slightly on the floor. Quickly, he shook the match out, reached in his pocket, found what he was looking for, and took it out. He crouched on the floor. The shape moved again. Four prefects said, I bought some peanuts. Arthur Dent moved and groaned again, muttering incoherently. Here, have some, urged Ford, shaking the packet again. If you've never been through a matter transfer beam before, you've probably lost some salt and protein. The beer you had should have cushioned your system a bit. (sighs) Said Arthur Dent. He opened his eyes. It's dark, he said. Yes, said Fort Prefect. It's dark. No light, said Arthur Dent. Dark, no light. One of the things Ford Prefect had always found hardest to understand about human beings was their habit for continually stating and repeating the obvious, as in, it's a nice day, or you're very tall, or, oh dear, you seem to have fallen down a 30-foot well, Are you all right? At first, Ford had formed a theory to account for this strange behavior. If human beings 
don't keep exercising their lips, he thought, their mouths probably seize up. After a few months' consideration and observation, he abandoned this theory in favor of a new one. If they don't keep on exercising their lips, he thought, their brains start working. After a while, he abandoned this one as well as being obstructively cynical and decided he quite liked human beings after all. But he always remained desperately worried about the terrible number of things they didn't know about. Yes, he agreed with Arthur. No light. He helped Arthur to some peanuts. How do you feel? he asked. Like a military academy, said Arthur. Bits of me keep passing on out. Ford stared at him blankly in the darkness. If I asked you where the hell we were, said Arthur weakly, would I regret it? Ford stood up. We're safe, he said. Oh, good, said Arthur. We're in a small galley cabin, said Ford, in one of the spaceships of the Vogon constructor fleet. Ah, said Arthur. This is obviously some strange usage of the word safe that I wasn't previously aware of. Ford struck another match to help him search for a light switch. Monstrous shadows leapt and loomed again. Arthur struggled to his feet and hugged himself apprehensively. Hideous alien shapes seemed to throng about him. The air was thick with musty smells which sidled into his lungs without identifying themselves, and a low, irritating hum kept his brain from focusing. How did we get here? he asked, shivering slightly. We hitched a lift, said Ford. Excuse me, said Arthur. Are you trying to tell me that we just stuck out our thumbs and some green bug-eyed monster stuck his head out and said, Hi, fellas, help right in. I can take you as far as the Basingstokes roundabout. Well, said Ford, the thumbs and electric stubby the signaling device and the roundabouts at Bernard Star six light years away, but otherwise that's more or less right. And the bug-eyed monster is green, yes. Fine, said Arthur. When can I get home? You can't, said Ford, and found the light switch. Shade your eyes, he said, and turned it on. Even Ford was surprised. Good grief, said Arthur. Is this really the interior of a flying saucer? Prostinate. Vogon Jelts heaved his unpleasant green body round the control bridge. He always felt vaguely irritable after demolishing populated planets. He wished that someone would come and tell him that it was all wrong so that he could shout at them and feel better. He flopped as heavily as he could onto his control seat in the hope that it would break and give him something to be genuinely angry about, but it only gave a complaining sort of creak. Go away, he shouted at a young Vogon guard who entered the bridge at that moment. 
The guard vanished immediately, feeling rather relieved. He was glad it wouldn't now be him who delivered the report they'd just received. The report was an official release which said that a wonderful new form of spaceship drive was at this moment being unveiled at a government research base on Damapgram, which would henceforth make all hyperspatial express routes unnecessary. Another door slid open. But this time, the Vogon captain didn't shout because it was the door from the galley quarters where the Dentrosi prepared his meals. A meal would be most welcome. A huge, furry creature bounded through the door with his lunch tray. It was grinning like a maniac. Vogon Jeltz was delighted. He knew that when a Dutrasi looked that pleased with itself, there was something going on somewhere on the ship that he could get very angry about indeed. Ford and Arthur stared about them. Well, what do you think? said Ford. It's a bit squalid, isn't it? Ford frowned at the grubby mattress, unwashed cups, and unidentifiable bits of smelly alien underwear that lay around the cramped cabin. Well, this is a working ship, you see, said Ford. These are the Dentrosi sleeping quarters. I thought you said they were called Vogons or something. Yes, said Ford. The Vogons run the ship. The Dentrosi are the cooks. They let us on board. I'm confused, said Arthur. Here, have a look at this, Ford said. He sat down on one of the mattresses and rummaged about in his satchel. Arthur prodded the mattress nervously, then sat on it himself. In fact, he had very little to be nervous about, because all mattresses grown in the swamps of Scornshellus Zeta are very thoroughly killed and dried before being put into service. Very few have ever come to life again. Ford handed the book to Arthur. What is it? asked Arthur. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's sort of an electronic book. It tells you everything you need to know about anything. That's its job. Arthur turned it over nervously in his hands. I like the cover, he said. Don't panic. It's the first helpful or intelligible thing anybody's said to me all day. I'll show you how it works, said Ford. He snatched it from Arthur, who was still holding it as if it was two weeks dead lark and pulled out of its cover. You press this button here, you see, and the screen lights up, giving you the index. A screen about three inches by four lit up and characters began to flicker across the surface. You want to know about Vogons? So I enter the name. So his fingers tapped some more keys. And there we are. The words Vogon Constructor Fleets flared in green across the screen. Ford pressed a large red button on the bottom of the screen and the words began to undulate across it. At the same time, the book began to speak the entry as well in a still, quiet, measured voice. This is what the book said. Vogon Constructor Fleets. Here is what to do if you want to get a lift from a Vogon. Forget it. They're one of the most unpleasant races in the galaxy. Not actually evil, but bad-tempered, bureaucratic, officious, and callous. 
they wouldn't even lift a finger to save their own grandmothers from the ravenous bug bladder beast of Trawl. Without orders signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back, queried, lost, found, subjected to public inquiry, lost again, and finally buried in soft peat and recycled as fire lighters. The best way to get a drink out of a Vogon is to stick your finger down its throat. The best way to irritate him is to feed his grandmother to the ravenous bug bladder beast of Trawl. On no account, allow a Vogon to read poetry at you. Arthur blinked. What a strange book. How did we get a lift then? That's the point. It's out of date now said Ford, sliding the book back into its cover. I'm doing the field research for the new revised edition, and one of the things I'll have to include is a bit about how the Vogons now employ Denatri cooks, which gives us a rather useful little loophole. A pained expression crossed Arthur's face. But who are the Dentrosi? he said. Great guys, said Ford. They're the best cooks and the best drink mixers, and they don't give a wet slap about anything else. And they'll always help hitchhikers aboard, partly because they like the company, but mostly because it annoys the Vogons. Which is exactly the sort of thing you need to know if you're an impoverished hitchhiker trying to see the morals of the universe for less than 30 Altarian dollars a day. And that's my job. Fun isn't it? Arthur looked lost. It's amazing, he said and frowned at one of the other mattresses. Unfortunately, I got stuck on earth for Ragatha longer than I intended, said Ford. I came for a week and got stuck for 15 years. But how did you get there in the first place then? Easy. I got a lift with a teaser. A teaser? Yeah. Uh, what is a teaser? Teasers are usually rich kids with nothing to do. They cruise around looking for planets which haven't made interstellar contact yet and buzz them. Buzz them. Arthur began to feel that Ford was enjoying making life difficult for him. Yeah, said Ford. They buzz them. They find some isolated spot with very few people around and land right by some poor soul whom no one's ever going to believe and strut up and down in front of them wearing silly antenna on their foreheads and making beep-beep noises. Rather childish, really. Ford leant back on the mattress with his hands behind his head and looked infuriatingly pleased with himself. Ford, insisted Arthur. I don't know if this sounds like a silly question, but what am I doing here? Well, you know that, said Ford. I rescued you from Earth. And what's happened to Earth? Ah, it's been demolished. Has it? said Arthur levelly. Yes. It just boiled away into space. Look, said Arthur. I'm a bit upset about that. Ford frowned to himself and seemed to roll the thought around his mind. Yes, I can understand that, he said at last. Understand that, shouted Arthur. Understand that? Ford sprang up. Keep looking at the book, 
he hissed urgently. What? Don't panic. I'm not panicking. Yes, you are. All right, so I'm panicking. What else is there to do? You just come along with me and have a good time. The galaxy's always a fun place. You'll need to have this fish in your ear. I beg your pardon? asked Arthur, rather politely, he thought. Ford was holding up a small glass jar, which clearly had a small yellow fish wriggling around in it. Arthur blinked at him. He wished there was something simple and recognizable he could grasp hold of. He would have felt safe if alongside the Trinosky underwear, the piles of scorn-shellous mattresses, and the man from Beetlejuice holding a small yellow fish and offering to put it in his ear, he had been able to see just a small packet of cornflakes. He couldn't, and he didn't feel safe. Suddenly, a violent noise leapt at them from no source that he could identify. He gasped in terror at what sounded like a man trying to gargle whilst fighting off a pack of wolves. Shh, shh, said Ford. Listen, it might be important. Important. It's the Fogon captain making an announcement on the Taoni. You mean that's how the Fogons talk? Listen, but I can't speak Fogon. Don't need to. Just put the fish in your ear. Ford, with a lightning movement, clapped his hand to Arthur's ear, and he had the sudden, sickening sensation of the fish slithering deep into its whirl tract. Gasping with horror, he scrambled at his ear for a second or so, but then slowly turned goggle-eyed with wonder. He was experiencing the oral equivalent of looking at a picture of two black silhouetted faces and suddenly seeing it as a picture of a white candlestick, or of looking at a lot of colored dots on a piece of paper which suddenly resolve themselves into the figure six and mean that your optician is going to charge you a lot of money for a new pair of glasses. He was still listening to the howling gargles. He knew that, only now, it had taken on the semblance of perfectly straightforward English. This is what he heard. Should have been a good time. Messages repeats. This is your captain speaking. So stop whatever you're doing and pay attention. First of all, I see from our instruments that we have a couple of hitchhikers aboard. Hello, whoever you are. I just want to make it totally clear that you are not welcome at all. I work hard to get where I am today, and I didn't become captain of a bogon constructorship simply so I could turn it into a taxi service for a load of degenerate freeloaders. I have sent out a search party, and as soon as they find you, I will put you off the ship. If you're very lucky, I might read you some of my poetry first. Secondly, 
We are about to jump into hyperspace for the journey to Barad Star. On arrival, we will stay in dock for 72-hour refit. And no one's to leave the ship during that time. I repeat, all planet leave is cancelled. I've just had an unhappy love affair, so I don't see why anybody else should have a good time. Message ends. The noise stopped. Arthur discovered his embarrassment that he was lying curled up in a small ball on the floor with his arms wrapped around his head. He smiled weakly. Charming man, he said. I wish I had a daughter so I could forbid her to marry one. You wouldn't need to, said Ford. They've got as much sex appeal as a road accident. No, don't move, he added as Arthur began to uncurl himself. You'd better be prepared for the jump into hyperspace. It's unpleasantly like being drunk. What's so unpleasant about being drunk? You ask a glass of water. Arthur thought about this. Ford, he said. Yeah. What's this fish doing in my ear? It's translating for you. It's a babblefish. Look it up in the book if you like. He tossed over the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and then curled himself up into a fetal ball to prepare himself for the jump. At that moment, the bottom fell out of Arthur's mind. His eyes turned inside out. His feet began to leak out of the top of his head. The room folded flat about him, spun around, shifted out of existence, and left him sliding into his own navel. They were passing through hyperspace. The Babblefish, said the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy quietly, is a small, yellow, and leech-like, and probably the oddest thing in the universe. It feeds on brainwave energy, not from its carrier, but from those around it. It absorbs all unconscious mental frequencies from this brainwave energy to nourish itself with. It then excretes into the mind of its carrier a telepathic matrix formed by combining the consciousness thought frequencies with nerve signals picked up from the speech centers of the brain which has supplied them. The practical upshot all is that if you stick a babblefish in your ear, you can instantly understand anything said to you in any form of language. The speech patterns you actually hear decode the brainwave matrix which has fed into your mind by your babblefish. Now it is such a bizarrely improbable coincidence that anything so mind-bogglingly useful could have evolved purely by chance that some thinkers have chosen to see it as the final and clinching proof of the non-existence of God. The argument goes something like this. I refuse to prove that I exist, says God, for proof denies faith, and without faith I am nothing. But, says man, the babblefish is a dead giveaway, isn't it? It could not have evolved by chance. It proves you exist, and so therefore, by your own arguments, you don't. Q.E.D. Oh dear, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanished in a puff of logic. Oh, that was easy, says man, and for an encore, goes on to prove that black is white and gets himself killed on the next zebra crossing. Most leading theologians claim that this argument is a load of dingo's kidneys, but that didn't stop 
Ulan Kolafid, making a small fortune when he used it as the central theme of his best-selling book. Well, that about wraps it up for God. Meanwhile, The Poor Babblefish, by effectively removing all barriers to communication between different races and cultures, has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in the history of creation. Arthur let out a low groan. He was horrified to discover that the kick through hyperspace hadn't killed him. He was now six light years from the place that the Earth would have been if it still existed. The Earth. Visions of it swam sickeningly through his nauseated mind. There was no way his imagination could feel the impact of the whole Earth having gone. It was too big. He prodded his feelings by thinking that his parents and sister had gone. No reaction. He thought of all the people he had been close to. No reaction. Then he thought of a complete stranger he had been standing behind in the queue at the supermarket before and felt a sudden step. The supermarket was gone. Everything in it was gone. Nelson's column had gone. Nelson's column had gone and there would be no outcry because there was no one left to make an outcry. From now on, Nelson's column only existed in his mind. England only existed in his mind. His mind stuck here in this dank, smelly, steel-lined spaceship. A wave of claustrophobia closed in on him. England no longer existed. He got that. Somehow, he got it. He tried again. America, he thought, has gone. He couldn't grasp it. He decided to start smaller again. New York has gone. No reaction. He'd never seriously believed it existed anyway. The dollar, he thought, had sunk forever. Slight tremor there. Every Bogart movie has been wiped, he said to himself, and that gave him a nasty knock. McDonald's, he thought. There was no longer any such thing as a McDonald's hamburger. He passed out. When he came around a second later, he found he was sobbing for his mother. He jerked himself violently to his feet. Fault! Ford looked up from where he was sitting in a corner, humming to himself. He always found the actual traveling through space part of space travel rather trying. Yeah, he said. If you're a researcher on this book thing and you were on Earth, you must have been gathering material on it. Well, I was able to extend the original entry a bit, yes. Let me see what it says in this edition, then. I've got to see it. Yeah, okay. He passed it over again. Arthur grabbed hold of it and tried to stop his hands shaking. He pressed the entry for the relevant page. The screen flashed and swirled and resolved into a page of print. Arthur stared at it. It doesn't have an entry, he burst out. Ford looked over his shoulder. Yes, it does. Down there, see at the bottom of the screen? Just under eccentrica gallimbits, the triple-breasted whore of Eroticon Six. 
Arthur followed Ford's finger and saw where it was pointing. For a moment, it still didn't register. Then his mind nearly blew up. What? Harmless? Is that all it's got to say? Harmless? One word? Ford shrugged. Well, there are a hundred billion stars in the galaxy and only a limited amount of space in the book's microprocessors, he said. And no one knew much about Earth, of course. Well, for God's sake, I hope you managed to rectify that a bit. Oh, yes, well, I managed to transmit a new entry off to the editor. He had to trim it a bit, but it's still an improvement. And what does it say now? asked Arthur. Mostly harmless, admitted Ford with a slightly embarrassed cough. Mostly harmless, shouted Arthur. What's that noise? hissed Ford. It was me shouting, shouted Arthur. No, no, shut up, said Ford. I think we're in trouble. You think we're in trouble? Outside the door were the sounds of marching feet. Botendrossi? whispered Arthur. No, those are steel-tipped boots, said Ford. There was a sharp, ringing rap on the door. Then who is it? said Arthur. Well, said Ford, if we're lucky, it's just the Vogons come to throw us into space. And if we're unlucky? If we're unlucky, said Ford grimly, the captain might be serious in his threat that he's going to read us some of his poetry first. Fogon poetry is, of course, the third worst in the universe. The second worst is that of the Azagoths of Crea. During a resuscitation by their poet master, Grunthos, the flatulent of his poem, Ode to a small lump of green putty I found in my armpit one midsummer morning. Four of his audience died of internal hemorrhaging, and the president of the Mid-Galactic Arts Noblin Council survived by gnawing one of his own legs off. Grunthos is reported to have been disappointed by the poem's reception and was about to embark on a reading of his 12-book epic entitled My Favorite Bathtime Gurgles, when his own major intestine, in a desperate attempt to save life and civilization, leapt straight up through his neck and throttled his brain. The very worst poetry of all perished along with its creator, Paula Nancy Millstone Jennings of Greenbridge, Essex, England, in the destruction of planet Earth. Vogon Jeltz smiled very slowly. This was done not so much for effect as because he was trying to remember the sequence of muscle movements. He had had a terribly therapeutic yell at his prisoners and was now feeling quite relaxed and ready for a little callousness. The prisoners sat in a poetry appreciation chair, strapped in. Vogons suffered no illusions as to the regards their works were generally held in. Their early attempts at composition had been part of a 
bludgeoning insistence that they be accepted as a properly evolved and cultured race. But now the only thinking that kept them going was sheer bloody-mindedness. The sweat stood out cold on Ford Prefect's brow and slid around the electrodes strapped to his temples. These were attached to a battery of electronic equipment. Imagery intensifiers, rhythmic modulators, alliterative residulators, and a simile dumper. All designed to heighten the experience of the poem and make sure that not a single nuance of the poet's thought was lost. Arthur Dent sat and quivered. He had no idea what was in for, but he knew that he hadn't liked anything that had happened so far and didn't think things were likely to change. The Vogon began to read, a fetid little passage of his own devising. Oh, frettled grunt bugly, he began. Spasms racked Ford's body. This was worse than he'd ever been prepared for. Thy migrations are to me as purdled gabble-blotchets on a lurig bee. Oh, went Ford, wrenching his head back as lumps of pain thrumped it. He could dimly see beside him Arthur lolling and rolling in his seat. He clenched his teeth. Group, I implore thee, continued the merciless Vogon, my fruiting turling drones. His voice was rising to a horrible pitch of impassioned stridency. And who titiously drangle me with crinkly blindle-wordles, or I will rend thee the gobberwarts with my blood-crunchian. See if I don't. <laughs> cried Ford Prefect, and threw one final spasm as the electronic enhancement of the last line caught him full blast across the temples. He went limp. Arthur lolled. No. Earthlings, word the Vogon. He didn't know that Ford Prefect was, in fact, from a small planet in the vicinity of Beetlejuice, and wouldn't have cared if he had. I present you with a simple choice. Either die in the vacuum of space, or... He paused for melodramatic effect. Tell me how good you thought my poem was. He threw himself backwards into a huge, leathery, bat-shaped seat and watched them. He did the smile again. Ford was rasping for breath. He rolled his dusty tongue around his parched mouth and moaned. Arthur said brightly, Actually, I quite liked it. Ford turned and gaped. Here was an approach that had quite simply not occurred to him. 
Defogon raised a surprised eyebrow that effectively obscured his nose and was therefore no bad thing. Oh, good, he whirred in considerable astonishment. Oh, yes, said Arthur. I thought that some of the uh, metaphysical imagery was really particularly effective. Ford continued to stare at him, slowly organizing his thoughts around this totally new concept. Were they really going to be able to bareface their way out of this? Yes, do continue, invited the Vogon. Oh, and, uh, interesting rhythmic devices, too, continued Arthur, which seemed to be... Counterpoint the, uh, uh, he floundered. Ford leapt to his rescue, hazarding, Counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor of the, um, he floundered too, but Arthur was ready again. Humanity of the Vogonity, Ford hissed. Ah, ah, yes, Vogonity. Gonity, sorry, of the poet's compassionate soul. Arthur felt he was on a home stretch now, which contrives through the medium of verse structure to sublimate this, transcend that, and come to terms with the fundamental dichotomies of the other. He was reaching a triumphant crescendo, and no one is left with a profound and vivid insight into into which suddenly gave out on him. Ford leapt in with the coup de gras in whatever it was that the poem was about, he yelled out of the corner of his mouth. Well done, Arthur. That was very good. The Fogon perused them. For a moment, his embittered racial soul had been touched. But he thought, no, too little, too late. His voice took on the quality of a cat snagging brushed nylon. So what you're saying is that I write poetry because underneath my mean, callous, heartless exterior, I really just want to be loved, he said. He paused. Is that right? Ford laughed a nervous laugh. Well, I mean, yes. Don't we all deep down, you know? The Vogon stood up. No, you're completely wrong, he said. I just write poetry to throw my mean, callous, heartless exterior into sharp relief. I'm going to throw you off the ship anyway. God! Take the prisoners to number three airlock and throw them out. What? shouted Ford. A huge young Vogon guard stepped forward and yanked them out of their straps with his huge blubbery arms. You can't throw us into space, yelled Ford. We're trying to write a book. Resistance is useless shouted the Vogon guard back at him. It was the first phrase he'd learnt when he joined the Vogon guard. 
The captain watched with detached amusement and then turned away. Arthur stared round him wildly. I don't want to die now, he yelled. I've still got a headache. I don't want to go to heaven with a headache. I'll be cross and wouldn't enjoy it. The guard grasped them both firmly around the neck and bowing deferentially towards his captain's back, hiked them both protesting out of the bridge. A steel door closed and the captain was on his own again. He hummed quietly and mused to himself, lightly fingering his notebook of verses. Hmm, he said, counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor. He considered this for a moment, then closed the book with a grim smile. Oh, death's too good for them, he said. The long, steel-lined corridor echoed to the feeble struggles of the two humanoids clamped firmly under rubbery Vogon armpits. This is great, spluttered Arthur. This is really terrific. Let go of me, you brute. The Vogon guard dragged them on. Don't you worry, said Ford. I'll think of something. He didn't sound hopeful. Resistance is useless, bellowed the guard. Just don't say things like that, stammered Ford. How can anyone maintain a positive mental attitude if you're saying things like that? My God, complained Arthur. You're talking about a positive mental attitude and you haven't even had your planet demolished today. I woke up this morning and thought I'd have a nice relaxed day. Do a bit of reading, brush the dog. Now, just four in the afternoon, I'm already thrown out of an alien spaceship six light years from the smoking remains of the Earth. He spluttered and gurgled as the Vogon tightened his grip. All right, said Ford. Just stop panicking. Who said anything about panicking? Snapped Arthur. This is still just the culture shock. You wait till I've settled down into the situation and found my bearings. Then I'll stop panicking. Arthur, you're getting hysterical. Shut up. Ford tried desperately to think, but was interrupted by the guard shouting again. Resistance is useless. And you can shut up as well, snapped Ford. Resistance is useless. Oh, give it a rest said Ford. He twisted his head till he was looking straight up into his captor's face. A thought struck him. Do you really enjoy this sort of thing? He asked suddenly. The Vogon stopped dead, and a look of immense stupidity seeped slowly over his face. Enjoy? He boomed. What do you mean? What I mean, said Ford, does it give you a full, satisfying life, stomping around, shouting, pushing people out of spaceships? The Vogon stared up at the low steel ceiling, and his eyebrows almost rolled over each other. His mouth slacked. Finally, he said, Well, the hours are good. They'd have to be, agreed Ford. Arthur twitched his head to look at Ford. Ford, what are you doing? 
he asked in an amazed whisper. Oh, just trying to take an interest in the world around me, okay, he said. So the hours are pretty good then, he resumed. The Vogon stared down at him as sluggish thoughts moiled around in the murky depths. Yes, he said, but now you come to mention it, most of the actual minutes are pretty lousy, except, he thought again, which required looking at the ceiling. Except some of the shouting I quite like. He filled his lungs and bellowed, Resistance is... Sure, yes, yes, interrupted Ford hurriedly. You're good at that, I can tell. But if it's mostly lousy, he said, slowly giving the words time to reach their mark, then why do you do it? What is it? The girls? The leather? The machismo? Or do you just find that coming to terms with the mindless tedium of it all presents an interesting challenge? Uh, said the guard. Or don't. No, I think I just sort of do it, really. My aunt said that spaceship guard was a good career for a young Vogon. You know, the uniform, the slung stunray holster. The mindless tedium. There you are, Arthur, said Ford, with the air of someone reaching the conclusion of his argument. You think you've got problems. Arthur rather thought he had. Apart from the unpleasant business with his home planet, the Vogon guard had half-throttled him already, and he didn't like the sound of being thrown into space very much. Try and understand his problem, insisted Ford. Here he is, poor lad. His entire life's work is stamping around, throwing people off spaceships. Oh, and shouting, added the guard. And shouting, sure, said Ford, patting the blubbery arm clamped round his neck in friendly condescension. And he doesn't even know why he's doing it. Arthur agreed that was very sad. He did this with a small, feeble gesture because he was too asphyxiated to speak. Deep rumblings of amusement came from the guard. Well, now you put it like that, I suppose. Good lad, encouraged Ford. But, all right, went on the rumblings. What's the alternative? Well said Ford brightly but slowly. Stop doing it, of course. Tell them, he went on, you're not going to do it anymore. He felt he had to add something to that, but for the moment the guard seemed to have his mind occupied, pondering that much. said the guard. Well, that doesn't sound that great to me. Ford suddenly felt the moment slipping away. Now, wait a minute, he said. That's just the start, you see. There's more to it than that, you see. But at that moment, the guard renewed his grip and continued his original purpose of lugging his prisoners to the airlock. He was obviously quite touched. No, I think if it's all the same, Tell you, he said. 
I'd better get you both shoved into this airlock and then go and get on with some other bits of shouting I've got to do. It wasn't all the same to Ford Prefect, after all. Come on now, but look, he said, less slowly, less brightly. <coughs> said Arthur, without any clear inflection. But hang on, pursued Ford. There's music and art and things to tell you about yet. Resistance is useless, bellowed the guard, and then added, You'll see, if I keep it up, I can eventually get promoted to senior shouting officer. And there aren't usually many vacancies for non-shouting and non-pushing people about officers. So I think I'd better stick to what I know. They had now reached the airlock, a large circular steel hatchway of massive strength and weight led into the inner skin of the craft. The guard operated a control, and the hatchway swung smoothly open. But thanks for taking an interest, said the Vogon guard. By now, he flung forward and Arthur threw the hatchway into a small chamber within. Arthur lay panting for breath. Ford scrambled round and flung his shoulder uselessly against the reclosing hatchway. But listen! He shouted to the guard. There's a whole world you don't know about. Here, how about this? Desperately, he grabbed for the only bit of culture he knew offhand. He hummed the first bar of Beethoven's fifth. Da-da-da-dum! Doesn't that stir anything in you? No, said the guard. Not really. But I'll mention it to my if he said anything further after that, it was lost. The hatchway sealed itself tight, and all sound was lost but the faint, distant hum of the ship's engines. They were in a brightly polished, cylindrical chamber about six feet in diameter and ten feet long. Potentially bright lad, I thought he said, and slumped against the curved wall. Arthur was still lying in the curve of the floor where he had fallen. He didn't look up. He just lay panting. We're trapped now, aren't we? Yes, said Ford. We're trapped. Well, didn't you think of anything? I thought you said you were going to think of something. Perhaps you thought of something and didn't notice? Oh, yes. I thought of something, panted Ford. Arthur looked up expectantly. But unfortunately, continued Ford, it rather involved being on the other side of this airtight hatchway. He kicked the hatch they'd just been through. But it was a good idea, was it? Oh, yes, very neat. What was it? Well, I hadn't worked out the details yet. Not much point now, is there? So, uh, what happens next? Oh, well, the hatchway in front of us will open automatically in a few moments, and we will shoot out into deep space, I expect, and asphyxiate. If you take a lungful of air with you, you can last for up to 30 seconds, of course. 
said Ford. He stuck his hands behind his back, raised his eyebrows, and started to hum an old Beetlejuicean battle hymn. To Arthur's eyes, he suddenly looked very alien. So this is it, said Arthur. We're going to die? Yes, said Ford. Except, no, wait a minute. He suddenly lunged across the chamber at something behind Arthur's line of vision. What's this switch? he cried. What? Where? cried Arthur, twisting around. No, I was only fooling, said Arthur. We're going to die after all. He slumped against the wall again and carried on the tune from where he left off. You know, said Arthur, it's at times like this when I'm trapped in a Vogon airlock with a man from Beetlejuice and about to die of asphyxiation in deep space that I really wish I'd listened to what my mother told me when I was young. Why, what did she tell you? I don't know. I didn't listen. Oh, Ford carried on humming. This is terrific, Arthur thought to himself. Nelson's column has gone. McDonald's have gone. All that's left is me and the words mostly harmless. Any second now, all that will be left is mostly harmless. And yesterday, the planet seemed to be going so well. A motor word. A slight hiss built into a deafening roar of rushing air as the outer hatchway opened onto empty blackness, studded with tiny, impossibly bright points of light. Ford and Arthur popped into outer space like corks from a toy gun. The Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts or send me an email at Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, visit my Patreon, where we have lots of tiers to choose from, each with their own special treats. Rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.